Hello and welcome to Knowledge Engage, the podcast of the University of Nottingham's Institute for Policy and Engagement. I'm Stephen Meek, the Director of the Institute. The Knowledge Engage podcast is an opportunity to explore with our researchers the work they're doing and how it's making a difference in the world. This season's podcasts have been focusing on research that promotes sustainability and issues around net zero ahead of the COP26 summit in Glasgow. In this episode, we'll be talking to Professor David Large about his research into peatlands and how it's being put into practice. David is the Abbott Professor of Geoscience in the Faculty of Engineering here at the University of Nottingham and was formerly head of the university's very successful Department of Chemical and Environmental Engineering. His research at the moment focuses on using satellite technology to understand and monitor changes in the condition of peatland. So David, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. So I'd like to begin by asking, why is it that we should be concerned about what's happening to our peatland? I guess at the heart of that question, there is the question of what is peatland and why does it matter so much? So peatland globally holds 30% of all soil carbon right. and only 3% of the land area. The existence yeah. of peatland depends on water. So without water, you don't get peatland. And we, we tend to refer to peatlands with different terms. So we talk about them as bogs, marshes, swamps, generally quite negative terms in some ways. In the UK, fens, most of our fenlands uh, were formerly peatlands. Uh, and these are areas that we have tended to target for what one might think of as improvement. And by that, I mean improvement for agricultural purposes. So you, know, you drain the land, etc. Now, the very existence of that vast carbon store depends on it not being drained. So if you start to drain the water out of a peatland, you introduce oxygen, the water moves, the air gets in, and the carbon oxidises. So there are vast tracts of global peatland now are severely damaged. And that's both in the temperate regions, you know, the UK, and also in the tropics. So in the tropics, the main culprit in many ways is the drainage of peat for palm oil. Uh-huh. We have these vast palm oil plantations which are sprawling across Indonesia, Malaysia, and other parts of the tropics. In the UK, it's slightly different. So we, we tended to have it's a different type of forestry. So we've replaced peatland with say, pine forestry or um, what's the right word for pine trees? <laughs> Conifers. Conifers, yeah. Conifer plantations, that's, that's the word I'm looking for. We've also drained it for more general agriculture. We've also used it for fuel, which is yeah. less common in the tropics. So we've been cutting peat for thousands of years, particularly in areas like the, the west of the UK, the Outer Isles of Scotland. That, that is one of the main deg- ways of degrading it. Another use means of degrading it is to churn it up and fragment it for compost. So when you buy compost for your garden, you know, often it will contain peat and, and that damages it. So they've been in, sitting there for thousands and thousands of years, really since the end of the last ice age, and they've been slowly accumulating this vast quantity of carbon. That happens really, really slowly, about 20 grams per metre squared per year, something like that. And then... You can degrade them in an instant. So vast amounts of carbon, very easily damaged. It's actually relatively easy to restore. So if you want to restore a peatland, you have to re-wet it. Mm-hmm. And the challenge in terms of re-wetting isn't necessarily that great. The challenge of re-wetting is changing the use of the land. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you deal with the politics behind getting people to accept that you know land that was now agricultural, say, or used for grouse moors or whatever, should now be you know, re-wetted and converted back to peatlands. Yeah. 
that's really interesting. And is there a, you know, in terms of the amount of peatland that's left or the, the risk to the peatland, is the way of sort of quantifying both the potential risks that we've got, but also the potential benefit of, re, of, of re-wetting, as you described it? So in, in terms of quantifying it, you know, we've mm-hmm. got a clear idea of what the state of affairs is over, say, the UK. Uh, globally, probably less clear. When you go to the tropics, you're looking at really the rate of increase of palm oil plantations and the rate of deforestation, which is coupled to the rate of reduction of peatland. So that's relatively well known. In the UK, we reckon it's about maybe somewhere between 80 and 95% of our peatlands are severely degraded. Right. That's based on their current land use. It's very interesting reflecting on what you said about the language that we have traditionally, you know, we've, we've described it negatively, that we've seen it as unproductive, useless, slightly unpleasant, marshy wetland rather than yeah. rather important. But so It has other sorry. important aspects to it. Yeah. So not only is it a store of carbon, it's a store of water. Yeah. It peaked yeah. in good condition, there's about 95% water. Yeah. And nearly all of the Major cities in the north of the UK depend on people catchments for their water supply. Nottingham being no exception. Interesting. So you've got the Derwent reservoirs in the Peak District. That is a peak cat. That's a peaty catchment. Imagine the dam busters flying down there doing a pack of burns, etc. It's a peak catchment and it's severely degraded. It gets regularly burnt for the purposes of grouse food. Yeah. So and that's all the way up the central Pennines. It's out of yeah. water and. If the peat's in bad condition, the water's in bad condition, and that costs the taxpayer money. And then you've got the biodiversity that goes with that, which is also uh, important, and these are attractive landscapes. Yeah, no, that's great. So can you tell us a bit about then what your research is at the moment? What is it you're looking at and, and the difference it can make? Yeah, I guess you have to think of what the problems are going forward with peatland. So we want to restore peatland. That, that is, uh, I hate the term, but a low-hanging fruit. It's relatively easy to do, and we know how to do that. To get that, though, it takes a lot of money. And the objectives currently, you know, if you look at the UK government, the UK put in somewhere in the order of about $1 billion that they've pledged over the next 10 years or so to restore peatland. But that's not going to be enough. So at the meeting I was at last week, it was indicated that to restore, say, Scotland's peatland alone would probably require not the $250 million the Scottish government have pledged over the next five years or so, but it probably takes somewhere on the order of $2 billion to restore our peatland because of the extent of it. It's a vast area. And the only way of really getting that is through green finance. Mm. We're looking for people to invest in the carbon credits that they will get from restoring that peatland. And if you're going to invest in peatland, whether that is a view to its value to the nation, its natural capital value, or whether that is a carbon value, you need to be able to say, has it worked? You need to be able to manage that process. You need to be able to monitor what is there now, and how, how it changes as we go forward. So my research is about how do you do that effectively? So there's really two approaches to the monitoring, or maybe three approaches to monitoring. One, you can send people into the field. So you can pay for the time of ecologists, etc., to go out there and look at the state of the peatland. It's a vast area. Globally, it's an enormous area. 3% of the land mass globally is enormous. So that is quite expensive, quite time-consuming, quite slow, Often the areas are remote, the conditions in which people might go out there are not great. You know, the tops of the Pennines, the tops of the Scottish mountains are, are harsh places to be, not to mention what it might be like in northern Canada or western yeah. Siberia. It's, you know, these, are, these are harsh environments, so they're quite hard to access. And all of it is to use remote sensing. So the remote sensing approaches, which are more commonly used, are called optical remote sensing. Think uh, Google Earth, <laughs> a Google Earth image of 
of the land, that's an optical image you're looking at it. It kind of shows you what you imagine you might see if you were up there in space looking. Now, that would be great, except peatlands are really wet, really cloudy. Therefore, you do not get very good quality optical <laughs> images at regular intervals because of cloud cover. So the solution we've been looking at, and this is where our research comes in, is to use satellite radar. And in particular, you can use satellite radar in two ways. But satellite radar sees through clouds. And one of the ways of doing it is just to get the satellite radar image. So you look at how much of the radar backscatters off the land, and you can get a, a measure of what's going on. But there's a slightly cleverer way than that, which is called interferometry. And what that does is it takes two successive images and looks at slight differences between those images. And those slight differences tell you how much the land has moved. Yeah millimetres or sub-millimetre movements in the land. Now, peat, fortunately, moves a lot. And it moves a lot because as it soaks up water, it swells. And as it loses water, it contracts. Some people don't like the sponge analogy, but it is like a sponge in that sense. If you go to take a bath sponge, dry it out, that'll kind of shrink and crinkle, and add water to it, and the whole thing kind of expands. And that process, scientifically, is referred to as poroelasticity. You've got holes, and it's elastic. So when you put water in, that elastic material grows. When you take the water out, it shrinks. And that's because of the force of the water on the structure of the peat. So we look at that. Now, that changes in multiple scales through the year for different reasons. So if you think of a, you know, an Atlantic storm comes over the UK, well, it's the peat, the peat swells. It dries out again, shrinks. But also in the summertime, when the plants grow, they do something called evapotranspiration. So the water is pumped into the atmosphere, CO2 is taken in, and the plants go green and they increase their, their, their mass. In wintertime, that shuts off in the UK, so the land holds water. So you get this lovely kind of seasonal sinusoidal pattern where in the summertime it goes down, it goes up in the winter and down in the summer, and so on. Now, the extent to which that happens, the extent to which it can mechanically go up and down depends on the condition of the peat. So if we can measure that movement, we can quantify the condition. Yeah. And I think it was, to understand that connection a bit better, if, you, if you're walking over a bog, which is rarely a very pleasant thing to do unless you enjoy <laughs> bogs, I quite enjoy bogs, but many people would find it quite hard work. You will always try to go to bits that are mechanically stiff. You're not going yeah. to stand in a pool of moss where you'll be up to your waist in peaky water in no time at all. Now, if you're in one of those areas, it's quite dynamic. It goes up and down. It moves notably. It will track the water table. When the water table goes down, it follows the water table, so it tends not to oxidise. If you're in an area that's really stiff, peat, which is the bits you prefer to stand on, then when the water table falls, because the peat's stiff, water table drops, the land stays high. And therefore, you introduce oxygen, therefore, you oxidise the peat, and therefore, that is in a less good condition. And yeah. that tends to be dominated by shrubs and things with eating and so on. So, that, that, that's a kind of insight into that. So, we look at these signals of the rise and fall of the bogs. We, we call it bog breathing. It's a wonderful <laughs> I love the word bog breathing. And by looking at the amplitude and the timing of these peaks, you know, how quickly it wets, how quickly it dries, what sort of magnitude you get you can get really quite a precise measure of condition mm-hmm. in developing new techniques for extracting these signals from the, the radar data and then using that to map condition independent of cloud cover, then generally nationwide. But we're starting in Scotland for that purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. really interesting. So this then can this can then be fed back as data, I mean, both for data on the condition of peatlands, but also the success of 
yes. measures that have been taken to restore the peatland and therefore issues around carbon credits and so forth. Absolutely. So if you've got a stiff degraded peat and you re-wet it, the ideal trajectory will be some, to something that's much more dynamic mm. in terms of surface yeah. movement. And in turn, that will be the flight of this vegetation and its ability to store carbon. So it's really, you, you talked then about how you've been working in Scotland on this. I don't know whether you're, I know that you've been sort of engaging across the UK. I just wonder if there are any sort of issues in terms of the environment for policy and lessons for policymakers from your, uh, from your experiences. Well, I think you have to ask why did we start in Scotland, and it's not because I'm Scottish. It was, it was because everything was much more together there. There was centralised policy, it was centrally controlled, they had a clear programme called Peatland Action that was administered through mm. what at that time was Scottish Natural Heritage, which is now Nature Scott. So we've been working closely with them, getting all the things in place to enable us to do this and develop it in conjunction with people who were close to the policymakers. So it was ideal. So. Mm. The kind of funding structures were centralised, the capacity to deploy those was centralised, and it was just so much easier when we mm. attempted to do it in uh, England in particular. You know, the whole kind of structure was much more fragmented, and you never quite knew. People didn't really know, could they spend money in monitoring? The money was really much available for the groundwork, as you might think yeah. of it, and sticking the barriers, etc. Are the lessons being learned from the Scottish experience? Because, you know, it feels to me that this, you know, situations in which different people are responsible for different aspects of the problem that you're trying to solve, and therefore nobody's responsible for the problem you're trying to solve, is quite a common one. Well, in policymaking generally, but I suspect in thinking about sustainability. So it'd be interesting in your experience as to whether things have changed or uh, you know, lessons are being learned. I think things are changing. So I can see evidence of change in Wales. They seem to be moving mm-hmm. to a much more of the Scottish model. England, I imagine, will go in that direction. Yeah. Northern Ireland, I would think, will follow. I, I'd be hopeful. I can't see the current process working particularly well. You know, the, the, the government has grand ambitions to do this restoration. Mm-hmm. England, which has about 10, well, less than 10% peak now, they put in supposedly 650 million over 10 years. If that's going to count, hmm. you, you really need to get that right. Yeah. You really need to, and you can see the, move, the moves afoot to, to achieve that and review the current situation and put the plans in place. And I'm interested as well to, is there any international interest in what's going on here? Yeah, well, there's considerable interest. Our most recent grant application that had support from a number of bodies, including the FAO of the UN, that does indicate the potential there. Yeah, and presumably the scales we're talking about in, well, I'm now going to show my ignorance. Where are the big peatlands around the world? Where, where, where should we be most worried? You can broadly split them into two categories, tropical and te- temperate and boreal. Mm-hmm. So big ones are Canada, vast areas, all of the Hudson Bay Lowlands, for example, peat. West Siberia, Western Europe, Scandinavia. Sweden, Finland, vast amounts of peat, Northern Holland, Denmark, Germany, UK. And then when you go down to the tropics, you're looking at the Amazon basin, upper parts of mm-hmm. Amazon. You have the Congo basin, vast amounts of peat in there, Malaysia, Indonesia. And then moving, if you go south again, you've got back into sort of temperate peatlands when you get down to Chile, southern the Patagonian peatlands. Yeah. We also have scattered peatlands in Australia and New Zealand. Gosh. Most countries have some, some more than others. The extent is huge. Yeah, but this way of monitoring the health of the peatlands, being able to do it at a distance remotely, much less labour-intensive way, must be a boon for thinking about that. 
It is. It's a new approach. Uh, it would need to be adapted to some areas. So if you go to areas like the tropics, uh, really dense forest cover, yeah. that, that offers challenges. And also you tend to get two wet seasons, two dry seasons. So the pattern is not the same as we observe in yeah. the UK. So you have to adapt and come up with a, a new model for how you would look at those peatlands in terms of the satellite signals. And similarly, if you go to, say, central Canada, Siberia, you've got really cold winters. Yeah. Yeah. You have to go through a period where everything's frozen. And then you would be looking at its behaviour during the summer period. Yeah. So, so you have to have a different a different compare a different model again yes. of health that you're yeah, comparing. Yeah, different model of health and movement of the surface and yeah. what parts of that represented the condition of the peat. But it's all possible. I think the most important thing is it is an entirely new approach to this problem. Yeah. 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 That's brilliant. One last question I was going to ask was. You know, as individuals, you know, we're all with COP26 and, and a general growing sense of what it is that we can do to help promote sustainability, get to net zero. What is it that we could do? Is there anything we can do to help with the peatlands? Well, day to day, don't use peat products. It's a very mm-hmm. simple message. Avoid, avoid palm oil, which mainly comes from degraded tropical peatlands. If you're buying compost at your garden centre, buy go peat free. Yeah. Uh, but also more generally, go and see them, value them. Be part of it. Think of them as areas which are not wet, soggy bogs, but think of them as places that are part of our beautiful natural heritage that should be valued, places yeah. that serve the needs of our society, places that give us our water supply and contribute greatly to our, our landscape diversity and ecology. It's about valuing what we have. And to really value something, I think you have to have some sense of what that something is. Brilliant. Well, look, what what an inspiring way to end this podcast. Thank you so much, David, for joining us on Knowledge Engaged and sharing your research with us. If you want to find out more about David's work, there are links in the notes to this podcast. And finally, thanks to you for listening.